and he has changed what would have been an extremely boring uh, presidential election into something unpredictable and very interesting. In our electoral war room episode eight months ago, we at Uncommon Decency argued that the French political landscape ahead of the presidential race next May was ripe for a populist upset. In other words, we believe that the scores of posters predicting a Macron-Le Pen runoff contest could be proved wrong by France's ever so facetious electorate. That upset might just have a name now, Eric Zemmour. A former political journalist and a Tucker Carlson-esque talking head, the right-wing intellectual has published his third best-selling essay, his public meetings quickly morphing into campaign rallies. Of Algerian Jewish stock, Zemmour has found himself in the unlikely role of organic intellectual for the country's nationalistic right. Though not officially in the running, his bid for the presidency is but a foregone conclusion. In the span of two months, Zemmour surged from 5% in the polls to the high teens, making him a favourite to face off against Macron in the runoff. In the most Trumpian of ways, he keeps a near monopoly on the airwaves by breaking up taboos and imposing his agenda, such as a borderline conspiracy theory of a great replacement of France's white Christian population with a new brown and Islamic alien majority. Today, we dive into the Zemmour phenomenon, engage how far he can go with two veteran journalists, Anne-Elizabeth Moutet and John Litchfield. Now, as always, please rate and review Uncommon Decency on Apple Podcast and send us your comments or question at UndecencyPod on Twitter or UndecencyPod at gmail.com. And also, as you know, we have this brand new Patreon account. Uh, we're very proud to announce we have our f- first Patreon supporters and we would love to be able to count on you. If there's enough of you uh, supporting our Patreon, which is down below in the description, uh, we will be exploring new ways to interact with our audience. So if you want to support the show, rate, review, but now you can also go that extra mile further. You can support us on Patreon. Now, on to the show. To cover this very unusual topic, we are very glad to have two experts of French politics. John Litchfield is a veteran foreign correspondent in France, serving as the independence correspondent for over two decades. He currently lives in Normandy and has been a keen observer of French politics, writing for the local, unheard and politico EU. Anne-Elisabeth Moutet is a returning on the show. Welcome back, Anne-Elisabeth. Um, we were very honoured to have you with Agnès Poirier for our 11th episode on what the US media gets wrong about France. And if you want to have a bit of fun with this episode, I really recommend you go listen to it because it's one of the most punchy episodes we have. Um, she's a columnist at the Sunday Telegraph with bylines in many other international publications, such as the New York Post or Unheard, for which she just published an excellent overview of Eric Zemmour entitled Is Eric Zemmour the French Trump? Um, Elizabeth, could you kick us off by describing Eric Zemmour? What is his background and how did he become so relevant to the public discourse in the first place? I think, uh, first of all, Eric Zemmour is primarily a journalist and he became a columnist and then you could say he's a shock jock, but in France a shock jock must be an intellectual of sorts. And so he's a well-read, well-argued, uh, uh, extreme view, viewing, entertaining, and the entertaining bit is very important, writer, broadcaster, and now he's about to step into politics. He's, uh, he's about to run for president. I think we have no doubt that he will run. He has uh, a hired campaign headquarters. He's got a team. Um, and he has changed what would have been an extremely boring uh, presidential election into something unpredictable and very interesting. Hmm. And um, John, um, on top of his background, could you sum up his worldview in a, in a few sentences? Yes, um, ha, a few sentences. I, I think uh, I would say Zemmour's worldview is that we should go forward to the past 
Um, he what exactly that past is um, changes in his discourse. I mean, he sometimes talks of forty years ago as being somehow a golden period in French existence. He talks about the RPR, the the the, the sort of uh, neo-Gaullist party invented by Jacques Chirac as being his his um, ideal of what French politics should be, even though. The RPR at the time, as I remember, it was a rather strange organization, very divided, as the centre-right still is, between being pro-European and very nationalist, um, extreme nationalist in, in its viewpoints, which Chirac used to sort of play on, on the, the different notes of at different times when it suited him. It was also essentially a vehicle only for Chirac, which stole a lot of money from Paris taxpayers to, to fund itself, but we won't go into that. So uh, his his view of, of, of France, I think he's, he's dominated by a sense that somehow French greatness has been thrown away by whether by corruption or by um, conspiracies against Frenchness. He, he gives Napoleon and uh, Charles de Gaulle as his great heroes, apart from the RPR period in French life. Um, even though he often contradicts himself on that, for instance, he um, is also someone who has spoken, uh, not fondly, but uh, defensively about the Vichy regime, which to which Gaulle was obviously, de Gaulle was obviously extremely opposed. And he is himself of, of Jewish origin. So he somehow gets away with saying that the, the Vichy regime was kind to French Jews, but not foreign Jews in a way that a uh, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen or a Marine Le Pen wouldn't get away with. So, yes, he's a great intellectual, but he's also, I think, a fraud to a large extent. His intellectualism is often based on misleading uh, history and uh, factually incorrect uh, uh, explanations of what's happened to, to French greatness in recent years. He's obsessed with race, essentially. Everything comes down, essentially, to race. Well, and delving a little deeper here in, in some of his major campaign themes, and perhaps the most important uh, campaign theme of Isimov at this point is uh, the demographic fate of France, right? And the, the idea of the, the grand remplacement. This uh, was the concept, obviously, developed by another right-wing intellectual, Renaud Camus, and the concept describes at times with conspiratorial uh, undertones the demographic change of France from being a wide Christian nation to a majority African slash Islamic one. So um, Zemmour says he fears that this will end up in, in a civil war with the terrorist attacks of the past year being only the tip of, of the iceberg. Now, this is obviously a very bleak uh, vision of, of French society, but as, as, we've, as we're seeing with, uh, with polls showing that uh, Zemmour's support is, is growing, it seems to resonate with, with a wide part of the electorate. Just how much does it resonate with the electorate? And what are the, the chances that Zemmour is going to strike a, strike a chord with uh, French voters, starting with Elisabeth and turning to, to John? Uh, the thing is that when you say there's a theory of Le Grand Remplacement, Renaud Camus, the man who formulated it, really hints at the fact that it's masterminded by those uh, cosmopolitan uh, sort of shadowy, shadowy figures that we know so much about from history, which it's really an extreme right trope. I don't think Zemmour says it's planned or um, uh, I've never heard him and I've not read him uh, saying that it was planned by some someone outside the nation. Uh, but the idea that French society is changing is actually something that um, is something that people observe and they react better, for better or worse, uh, depending on actually what their own experience of seeing French society change. And it is perfectly true that when it, it's not so much the color of people, it's the social conditions of, of people that make uh, the change in French society come with a change of... of um, uh, perceptions of security. Uh, all politics is perception, and therefore, against Zemmour has an appeal because people are told uh, that uh, uh, what um, Emmanuel Macron has called la créolisation de la société uh, is something that is devoutly to be wished for. And and when people's cars are being burnt under their windows in uh, in, in difficult areas, the equivalent, if we were in America, of the, the South Bronx at one time in the history of New York, for instance, it's very obvious that they feel that there's a disconnect. And so uh, I think he, by not calling it so often le grand remplacement, but saying that there's a change in French society and that it's not a good thing, he is going to find a lot of people uh, who would not want to be either called racist or do not think they're racist, whether they are, is open to question depending on individualities, it's not a group per se, but who certainly feel that today politicians fail to address one of their main concerns. Um, this, is, this is where the, uh, 
uh, uh, the change in French society as something that will bring people over to Zemmour. John, would you like to? Um, yes, I, I would. I, I, yeah, I mean, we, we like with all things with Zemmour, he, he plays with the words and he plays with the facts. Uh, yes, in his most recent book, from my reading of it, he does talk about um, the Grand Remplacement as something willed and as something um, intended, not just as something that's happened by accident. Other points, he's less clear on that. Um, uh, and, you know, I agree with Anne-Elizabeth. It's, it's this area is a huge problem, not because, and he, again, Zemmour plays with the figures, not because the numbers are so overwhelming that France is going to become a, a majority a Muslim nation by, I think he says, 2050. I mean, the figures just don't support that at all. There is an enormous issue with... Um, disaffected, uh, often violent young people of, of black and brown skins or, or Muslim uh, backgrounds in, in the inner cities, or not the inner cities in France, but more the inner suburbs in France. And I spent a lot, many uh, interesting days in such places before I got too old and my knees too creaky to, to walk around them. So, you know, I, I don't myself... Um, downplay the importance of that as an issue um but you know it's all very well to raise things as an issue um and and to offer possible solutions to it I mean, what is what what does the more say about these things he says he talks about the french economy having or the french uh the, france having sort of fallen behind germany and the united states in, in terms of gdp had in the last 40 years he's right it has why has that happened I think it's partly because, in fact, it's fallen behind, but France is actually more prosperous than it was 30 years ago, but not as prosperous, as much more prosperous as the Germans and the Americans. And the reason for that, well, can offer lots of different reasons, high taxation, the fact that France, on average, although those who do work, work very hard and effectively, on average, France works less than any other Western nation because um, retirement is so early, uh, unemployment has been so high, students uh, are students for so long and 35 hour a week. He doesn't give that as the reason. He says it's the third worldification of France that's caused this. What does that mean? It means that black and brown people are responsible for bringing down the, the, uh, the sort of basic uh, uh, prosperity of the country. Uh, there's no evidence of that, whatever. I mean, you know, who, who kept on working through, through, the, uh, through the pandemic coming into, into Paris in crowded uh, trains and, and buses to, to do the basic work, which couldn't be done from home? It was mostly black and brown people from, from the Monnier. You don't hear that from Zemmour, which is not to say there isn't a problem. There clearly is a problem. His solution to it is to is to sort of essentially bring on the civil war that he he says he he um, he he fears because he's suggesting never quite clear how this would work either that France should go back to a law from the early nineteenth century which means that there should be no more Mohammeds and no more Faridas everyone should be called Anne Elizabeth or John or Jean uh, I don't think I mean is that a serious proposal by a serious politician. Um, he, he's also sometimes implies that he thinks that those those Muslims in France who don't assimilate and he doesn't really define what exactly what that means, whether it would mean giving up Islam, uh, should be somehow got rid of. But huge numbers, I don't know how many Muslims are in France because the figures are very difficult to get at, but it's probably about five million, I think. Many of those are people who are in third or fourth generation families. In other words, they are French. They're not Algerian or Tunisian or Mor Moroccan. So you have to start from where you are. You have, can't start from this sort of this um, vision he has of a kind of return to a past in which France was a white-dominated uh, society. It isn't anymore a white-dominated society, which isn't to say it's going to become um, a, a Muslim-dominated society at all or in the near future. Um, there's something interesting going on in the election. It's because Simmel was not officially a candidate yet. Uh, we all know he's going to run, but that makes him kind of in a strange position of not having to rule out a program yet, but at the same time being able to push his themes. But I want to focus on um, Zemmour and Europe, because Zemmour, like many people in the kind of um, nationalistic right, is very much hostile to the EU. He's well known for opposing the establishment of a constitution for Europe back in the 2005 referendum. I think he also voted no in the Maastricht referendum um, in 1992. Um, he lambasted Marine Le Pen, nonetheless, for focusing a 2017 campaign on the EU so heavily, 
and he is nowadays completely opposed to Frexit. Um, and Elizabeth, where does Zemmour lie on the EU? Is there kind of tactual, tactical posturing here? And could this issue, this ambiguity, be a weak spot for, for Zemmour? Well, first of all, I think the French themselves are beginning to feel slightly ambiguous about Europe because, by and large, they've been brought up with the idea that Europe, which was the brainchild of, of founding fathers, two of whom were French, is a good thing, and they feel that there's kind of overreach and mission creep. Uh, so uh, the other thing is that Zimu actually studied economics, and therefore he says uh, he sees perfectly well that uh, getting out of the euro is considering our usual reliance on debt would be disastrous. And so uh, he's realistic on this one. But the this question, like the previous question, the thing about Zimu is that he still has the journalist view of sort of throwing stuff, uh, sort of you know, casting his bread upon very wide waters and seeing what gives, and working with a context that perhaps uh, uh, foreign observers will, will, will uh, uh, not get. Um, um, in, in, in terms of Europe, it's, it's this love-hate relationship with uh, a system in which, as long as it was a way to help France bat above her average, if you like, um, uh, Europe was useful. But when you take someone like Michel Barnier, and Michel Barnier starts suddenly sort of saying the exact opposite of what he was uh, telling the British during the four years of Brexit negotiations, i.e. that um, sovereignty, French sovereignty, should not be impinged by European Court of Justice or other things. That actually, that that uh, that sort of trouble, that kind of mixed message, is something that really uh, uh, coincides with how the the French feel about it, which is why it resonates so well. It's not viewed here so much as a contradiction. And earlier we had exactly the same thing when John says, you know, this whole thing about Christian names. Um, there was a whole period, in, uh, admittedly in the French past, but in, in recorded memory and in personal memory of people changing their names because it was part of the way you became French. And what Zemmour is doing is he's actually sort of sending uh, a dog whistle, if you want, to, but a, a sort of uh, a, not necessarily a, a noxious dog whistle, saying there was a time when you gave signs that you wanted to be French, and there's a feeling that people who wave Algerian flags at matches where the French national team is fighting the Algerian team, for instance, are waving Algerian flags, and they're shocked by that. Uh, this would be something that would be completely acceptable in a place like America, in which the flag is very important, and it's something that still is important but is not in public discourse um, in France. And I, that explains for many things why you have a feeling that Zemmour has a passiste and and contradictory discourses that he's actually pushing buttons that nobody else is pushing in the national community. That's how it works. I, I, Zemmour on Europe is interesting. I mean, uh, you know, I, I agree with Anne, Anne Elizabeth that the French um, uh, attachment uh, to belief in, even understanding of what the European Union is, is not strong. You know, what struck me in the 2005 uh, campaign on on having a, a constitution for Europe was when I went round. I went did a tour all around uh, France, talking to lots of different people, and I discovered that what people hated in the constitution was not the new parts that had been added on. It was the original parts, the Treaty of Rome, the idea of free competition. They hated that. You know, it had been there. They'd been living under it for all those years, but didn't quite understand it. That was on the left. On the right, it was the, the, this aspect of French laws being being um, subjected to to European laws. Well, that had been the basis of the European Union, not even before the Treaty of Rome, in fact, from the from the coal and steel community onwards. But uh, Anne Elizabeth is right. There is there is huge misunderstanding on that, about that. There is it is possible to to uh, we're going to say manipulate, but it's certainly possible in certain issues come up to 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 have French people talking in a very uh, almost sort of Brexit, uh, UKIP-like way about these things. Um, and I, I think potentially France is a country that could become r rather anti-European in, in, in months ahead, or years ahead, I should say. I think Zemmour likes to play with that. He saw that in the last campaign, Marine Le Pen got herself in a terrible tangle about the euro and about leaving the EU because people were scared of the economic immediate effects of that. What's happened with Brexit has not exactly helped that argument very much. Um, uh, and you see now, even in the right-wing French papers, uh, sort of mocking of what's happening in Britain because of Brexit. 
But at the same time, he, he does, as, as Anne Elizabeth said, like to play with the idea of the EU, uh, of the European Union as a threat to French sovereignty, a French nationhood. He, very recently, he, play, he put out what was almost like a kind of a statement by a politician rather than by a journalist, even though he hasn't uh, entered the campaign yet, on the Polish court's decision to challenge uh, some aspects of, of the uh, of European law as being against the constitution of, um, of Poland. But he missed a point, I think, because he, at the end of that statement, he said that we should go back to a situation where French law should uh, have supremacy again over European law, which was not really the point about the Polish case, which is a question of whether the Polish constitution should have supremacy. If you did what Zamor said at the end of that letter, you would effectively be leaving the European Union. He, he, is, he is essentially destroying the whole basis on which the European has existed since uh, long before 1957, in the sense, since the Treaty of Rome. So whether he understands that, whether he's playing on people's ignorance about it, but it's another example of how Zamor is, in a sense, plays with the en même temps, uh, the ambivalence of French politics as much as, as Emmanuel Macron does. Now, um, if, if we look at the political spectrum in this country and we ask what are the factors that have been at play in Zemmour's rise, it seems like one big factor has been, uh, you know, the field of, of uh, potential candidates has been cleared by center right and, the center-right and the center-left parties. Th those two are no longer, uh, they're, 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 in dis they're, they're in a dismal state and that has cleared up the field for, for Zemmour to, to run. Um, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but there seems also that uh, there, there's a, a broader sort of political realignment at play with uh, Macron on one hand, who, you know, uh, represents a sort of the winners of globalization, the sort of the thriving, prosperous, urban electorate, uh, youngish urban electorate. And on the other hand, you have Zemmour, who obviously can, can, contending with uh, Marine Le Pen. But how much do you think this is a, a, a broader political realignment that is pitting the winners versus the losers of globalization, as, as has been argued by by a, a lot of commentators in France, lately, starting with, with Anne-Elisabeth and then turning to John. I think even if it's not entirely phrased like that, there's a great deal in this, but there's also specific, you know, like every, um, every time you've got global uh, uh, issues and we, we could compare Trump voters to Zimor vote, <coughs> voters and Brexit voters, but each country does things differently. And in France, uh, the... Um, uh, in France, the uh, feeling has been uh, that uh, no nobody of the traditional parties was reliable anymore, and it's a feeling that's been used devastatingly by Emmanuel Macron. I think Emmanuel Macron has a great responsibility in creating this wasteland, because um, he cherry-picked ministers when he was elected. He came, he came, and he surfed on what was really uh, a dégagiste wave, which means um, uh, people wanted to. <coughs> Sorry, people wanted to get out all the incumbents. And he then cherry-picked, he said, no more left, no more right. And he picked ministers and MPs to create out of nothing something which has turned out five years later not to be a real political party. So he's destroyed politi traditional political parties. And uh, then he proceeded to essentially create a cabinet of ministers who were more like uh, civil servants under the authority of a higher civil servant himself, and he uh, people the National Assembly with nonentity. So we have a parliament that essentially is there to do what the boss says, and will, he has a, a comfortable majority. And he, we have a government where there's no political, pers almost no pers political personality to oppose the president. And the result is that there's a complete disinterest in politics, because actually these tried and tested structures have existed ever since democracy uh, was, was, was introduced in, in, in France. And the same thing for other countries. What, you know, if you compare by, by, uh, uh, with Boris Johnson, a character that Emmanuel Macron doesn't understand and do not like, does not like, uh, Boris Johnson managed to get you know, all the different trends of the Tory party in, including bringing back in people who voted for the Brexit party and for UKIP, so that the, the Tory party uh, love it or hate it, it doesn't matter. It still is a sort of broad, complicated, fractious tent within which you've got most of one side of the island. It's recognizable from what it was 50 or 100 years ago. 
um, in France, we have a wasteland because the wasteland was in the process of happening. I haven't even started talking about the left-wing parties, but they are, as uh, Huelbeck says, atomized. Um, but um, we, we've got this, and it's no wonder that, considering that Marine Le Pen is perceived by her own partisans to uh, as being incompetent, there was, uh, as the French say, un boulevard, there was a big sort of space for someone who would do this, and the, the, the someone in question is Eric Zemmour. John, what do you make of, uh, what do you make of uh, this realignment of French politics, and what are some of the differences, maybe you can uh, speak to some of the differences between Zemmour and Le Pen? Yes, um, I, I can. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I partly go along with what Elizabeth said, but the suggestion that somehow Macron is the man who's destroyed the traditional party families in in, in France, the, on the left or on the centre-right, is, it seems to me, uh, giving Macron much too much credit. You, you know, I mean, the centre-right in this country in the 20 or 25 years I've been here has been destroying itself gradually and not so gradually. I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of corruption, the tearing apart, the personal hatreds in the centre-right are an extraordinary subject in itself. We could fill 40 or 50 of these episodes with those, and that was not something created by Macron. It was something that Macron exploited or replaced, if you like. I mean, I would argue that Macron has actually been the most effective centre-right president this country has had since de Gaulle, um, uh, possibly since Pompidou. People might make a case for, 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 for possibly for Giscard at times, but uh, he has been essentially a centre-right president, which is one of the reasons why people on the centre-right detest him so much, uh, and also why people on the left detest him so much. But that's that's I'm going a bit down a bit of a rabbit hole there. The differences between Le Pen and Zemmour. Um, interestingly, Le Pen tried to change her father's party to bring it in some ways more to the left, uh, to appeal to blue collar. Uh, voters, what we call the Red Wall Brexit voters in Britain, who, who traditionally been Labour voters and here have been traditionally more socialist or even communist voters. Uh, there were almost two ressemblements uh, national under Le Pen, one in the north and one in the south. The, the northern party, which is where her own constituency is near, near Lille, is very much the party of, of working class people. Um, and of uh, working class patriotism, as you like, working class fear of Islam and, and colored people as well. Um, and therefore the party itself had to adopt very kind of almost socialistic interventionist sort of policies to please those people. The party in the South is much more of the old Le Penist party, um, Pujanist party, small businessmen, lots of people who are from the sort of Pienois of ex-Algerian communities supporting them down there, much more traditional French far-right sort of party. There was always a contradiction within her party on that, which she, able to, she was able to keep together um, as long as it was expanding. It's begun to become more of a problem and her own failures and her own... Um, well, there are lots of things one can say about Le Pen's failure, failure, failure to finally what she delivered. Maybe she, what she was trying to deliver was was impossible. She was trying to essentially deliver a far right party that didn't um, didn't admit to being a far right party. And there she got the worst of both worlds. You know, the, the real, the sort of more uh, the more sincere, the most ideologically far right people hated what she was doing. And it was not really possible, finally, for her to push it into being a respectable party. What strikes me as the difference with Zemmour is that he doesn't appeal at all, I don't think. And I can see it here in my village in Normandy, which votes 30% Rassemblement National, even though I'm only the only immigrant for miles. Um, it's mostly young people, young sort of working class people who, who, who would vote Rassemblement National here. And also that would be true in sort of the more ex industrial and ex-industrial parts of France. Uh, there was then also a more uh, well-off, more educated uh, right-wing vote. I think Zemmour appeals to them. He appeals to people who hated the, the Rassemblement National, hated Le Penism on the hard end of the centre-right because they they thought it was vulgar, uh, because they you know they they didn't want to be associated with the more extreme race rule, especially not the most uh, more anti-Semitic views associated with the Rassemblement National over the years or Front National before. So in a sense, um, Zemmour, although he says he's appealing to this sort of great 
uh, anger in this country, the great sense of loss in the country, is in many ways appealing to people who, who are actually quite well off, you know, um, well-educated um, people in 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 the uh, in the uh, in the urban areas of France, which have never really fallen as as much as they have to him to to Le Pen. So yes, he's taking votes from her. He's also taking votes from the hard end of the centre right. He's perhaps taking votes more widely than that, but. It doesn't seem to me there is a complete overlap between Zemmourism and Le Penism, and how that will how that will resolve itself in the end is one of the interesting questions. Thanks a lot, John, for this really interesting overview of uh, Rassemblement National Party and the differences with um, Zemmour. I think there's one thing we can agree on is since he, well, I was about to say he launched his campaign, but he hasn't officially launched his campaign. But since he he erupted in the political landscape he has managed to impose his themes and we're only talking about him and his topics, Grand Placement Immigration. Now it seems that everyone is following Zemmour and talking about these issues. I want to give you a few examples. Michel Barnier is um, calling for his moratorium on immigration and um, is willing to have a confrontation with EU judges on that issue. Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron is now slashing visas from uh, the Maghreb countries. Is the strategy to ape Zemmour to imitate Zemmour, will that be enough to cut his appeal um, or will that only reinforce him and Elizabeth? Oh, I, you know, my immediate reaction to this is that people prefer the original to the copy. And that's what Marine Le Pen is finding out, has been finding out for some time. And, and of course, uh, what's interesting is that they've suddenly realized that there's a vote getter somewhere. Uh, you know, the, uh, but the, the main difference between Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour is that Marine Le Pen, apart from the fact that she comprehensively uh, destroyed her image in the single television debate that she had with uh, Emmanuel Macron in 2017, where her own partisans decided that she couldn't swing it. Um, the other thing is that uh, her party is quite rightly so viewed as a family concern and not a real party. They do have local uh, um, grassroots, uh, but... The organization is still something where being a Le Pen or being within the Le Pen camp is, is more important than anything you can bring to the party. And she regularly gets rid of people who are intelligent and uh, are people who dare to have ideas that are not approved by the boss. Um, uh, so uh, she was bound to sort of disappear from uh, French political history because of that. Most recently, she got rid of somebody called Jean Messiha, who is a Frenchman who was born Egyptian with Copt. Uh, uh, a man who uh, uh, studied at ENA. He is uh, he's a very good polemicist. He's become a, uh, a television personality of sorts in, in various uh, debating programs. And immediately she got rid of him because he was he was somebody who did not sort of follow her slavishly. Uh, and the she made a boss of her own party, a 25-year-old called Jordan Bardella, whom she's very close with. Uh, none of this looks very serious. Uh, the one voters that she might still have are the Rust Belt voters because Zemmour is a bit too elitist. But there's another point about elites in France. Elite, of course, has become a dirty word everywhere and also in France. There's a certain kind of French elite who are the French, essentially people who come from the technocratic cadre of France, uh, uh, the graduates of the government school ENA, the people who all speak in the same way, all have the same top-down bureaucratic solutions. And actually, and Zemmour is quite aware of that, um, actually built, uh, rebuilt France after World War II. After World War II, uh, France was pretty much in, in bad shape and uh, semi-destroyed by, by German occupation and bombings. And... Uh, there was a period in which a, a cad, the same cad of civil servants, but with very different personalities, essentially worked together for the common good in a government that at the beginning also included communists, all parties. And afterwards, they, this gave birth to what is known in France and is sort of hallowed in memory of les 30 glorieuses, the 30 glorious years. This is a reference to the 30 uh, uh, the Trois Glorieuses, which was three days in the 1830 revolution in France, but never mind. The Trois Glorieuses are a time where there's relatively no unemployment, where there's a uh, growth of 5% annually, and the country is rebuilding itself in a great, in a mood of optimism. 
and every populist in France wants the Trente Glorieuse back, and, and every uh, 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 candidate to the presidency is also wake to the idea of, can you bring something with a new great welfare net, good social protections, good salaries, full employment? And the answer, of course, is that that time has passed for various reasons. But whoever refers to this and saying that it has changed uh, um, is, is sort of playing to the, the, the psyche of the French. And this is where someone like Eric Zemmour, harking back to that fairly recent past is absolutely in the zeitgeist. What's very interesting to me is that yesterday Emmanuel Macron launched effectively his electoral campaign by announcing a 30 billion euro nine-year plan to make France great again, essentially, you know, uh, more nuclear plants, but high-tech and smaller and more effective, um, more uh, technology. All of this is probably very good, especially in light of the energy crisis. And then how to make French culture relevant again and create the French French Netflix, how to create the French high-tech giants to fight presumably Apple and the rest of the GAFA, which is complete fantasy and which has been something that has been mooted by almost every government in every decade, and it never worked out because these are things that you can't decide top-down. Nuclear industry, good trains, good telephone lines, that's something you can do top-down. It's plays to the French strength, which are infrastructure. Uh, inventing something that customers will want to buy, not placed to the French uh, strengths at all because our engineers do not do bottom-up. And this is where the battle of the mind of the French is now being waged. This is why Zemmour is effective, and this is why, quite frankly, uh, Marine Le Pen herself also understanding or misunderstandings protect, was proposing more protection because that's part of it. The French want a social contract. Uh, even the French populists never say we want you know, uh, to uh, less French state, less state, less intervention. All the, the French populists realize that uh, the, uh, the genetic code of the country is state intervention. And this is back from Philippe Auguste, hmm. so the Middle Ages. Um, John, do you think that perhaps Macron has come across a solution to um, pushing back against Zimur? Because it seems most of them has, have kind of been incapable of develop, developing a kind of counter-narrative. Do you think the solution is kind of building counter-narrative rather than focusing on um, you know, his, his uh, supposed racism, misogyny, um, or fact-checking? Um, what, what do you make of that kind of strategy? Well, first, it's interesting if you look at what's happening in the polls at the moment. There's a huge ferment going on in, in, the, in the broad area of the right and the centre-right. Uh, the left is sort of moribund, if you like. They have about 30% of the vote, which is not bad, I suppose, um, but it's split between seven or eight different candidates, so terrible from their point of view. The rest, the 25% or so, um, goes to uh, Macron, and that's been about the same. It's been creeping up, if anything. He has been untouched. He sort of floats on the surface of all this, um, he doesn't seem to have been really troubled by the Zemmour uh, um, explosion. You could even argue that maybe Zemmour being in the second round would be almost more so than Le Pen, a guarantee that Macron will be re-elected. And Elizabeth may not agree with me on that, but I, I think that would in, in fact be the outcome. The danger for him is, of course, that Zemmour and Le Pen sort of wrestle themselves into kind of uh, a sort of draw and it allows the centre-right to come through into the second round. And I've always thought that the, the way Macron will be defeated uh, next April is if there is a single convincing candidate of the centre-right. But who is that? I mean, they've now decided to have a single candidate, but it isn't clear that it's going to be someone who can really take on Macron. But that's taking us into a, a different part of the campaign. I, I think to start go back to the original question about whether... Uh, Zemmour is influencing what other people are saying in, in this campaign. Yes, up to a point, he obviously is. But for instance, Barnier, and Barnier is an interesting character, I think, his idea, which it doesn't quite completely turn on its head everything he's previously said about Europe, as Anne Elizabeth said, because it is very narrow. He's, he's suggesting that the the, the, that France should challenge the right of, of the European Union to have its law impose uh, to be superior to French law in the question of immigration because he thinks there should be a moratorium on, on migration. But he said that long before Zemmour became this uh, huge 
uh, eruption into the campaign. He said that several months ago. Um, it's a clever idea on his part because it basically um, changes his image in the centre-right as being the grand Mr Europe as to someone who's much more nationalistic and that does appeal to the people on the centre-right and not just to the Zamor people or to the Le Pen people. So he, he's been very effective by doing that. Yet he's still relatively unpopular uh, in the nation as a whole, according to the polls, if if one can believe them. So I think that's also true of of some of the. I mean, it's it's yes, it's true that people like I think Bertrand and, and um, Valerie Pécresse have started to talk about immigration as well. But immigration was always going to be an issue in this campaign. Zemmour has certainly. Um, shaken up the debate in the right and the centre-right. He hasn't really changed at all in, in the Macronist centre or, or or on the left, as things stand. Um, I, I, I personally don't think that uh, Zemmour will get into the second round. I think what we're seeing here on the part of Zemmour is, is something, in a sense, much more long-term and, to me, something much more dangerous, which is he is, as as Elizabeth suggested earlier, essentially he is what his eruption into, into the campaign is uh, the death, really. It's going to create, it probably destroy what was the old centre-right, always fractures, always divided, and split the country more into a kind of nationalistic anti-European right, uh, subsuming Zamorism and Le Penism and the hard end of the centre-right, and then a kind of uh, a slightly amorphous pro-European centre represented by Macron, but also increasingly by part of the of the old the the, the, the Le Republicain. It was interesting this week also that Edouard Philippe, Macron's um, former prime minister, has launched this party, which in its long term I think is intended to take away part of the present Le Republicain coalition and make it part of the more Macronist or eventually Philippist maybe in 2027 new coalition of the centre and the um, centre-right, maybe part of the left. And then the sort of fractures left, whether it will ever come to agree on one thing uh, or not in the future. So yes, this is all part of an interesting long-term, I think, shift in, in French politics, which may in the long run produce a kind of um, France not so very different from Brexit Britain, I think, uh, something that scares me as someone who, who's fairly pro-European. But uh, I don't see Zemmour as having um, finally being able to put forward a single idea as how he would govern the country and, and enough to be able to even reach the second round this time, but certainly not to win. And one of the parallels that, that you draw in your piece, uh, Anne Elizabeth, of uh, just a few days ago on Unheard is the parallel with, with Trump. And this is a, a particularly interesting one. And, and surely Zemmour has also been very keen to break up taboos and have and draw a lot of media attention on issues that the political establishment uh, just isn't willing to, to deal with. And, and he does it in a way that attracts a lot of media attention and in a way that, that reminds of Trump. What do you make of this parallel specifically? And what can we expect? I mean, wh wh who is who is really uh, Zimbal drawing his, his his inspiration from in, in sort of the, the international figures that he may be uh, emulating? He, I think I said earlier that Zemmour is not very much aware of what's international. His English is serviceable, but not good. Um, he doesn't read books in a foreign language, and therefore uh, what he's got is mediated by the French press mostly. Uh, having said that, and I don't think the French press has understood this, uh, 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 most of these figures. I mean, there are actually writings somewhere else, but the mainstream press certainly hasn't. Having said that, uh, of course, Zemmour is very much aware of Trump's appeal because the big thing about Trump's appeal is that uh, he perceived uh, that there was uh, uh, an anger in, in, in whole swathes of the country of people who felt that they were neglected. This is the same thesis as David Goodhart's, you know, uh, the road to somewhere, uh, uh, the division between the anywheres, the people who can live in, who live in big cities, could work any place in the world and feel themselves as part of the culture rather than part of the place, and the people who are stuck where they are and who know mostly their neighbours and the people they work with and who belong to an area and feel that they've been left uh, sort of uh, 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 left behind by, by globalisation. goes back to what we started with. Uh, the person who's been writing about this is Eri 
sorry, um, Christophe Guilloui, a French social geographer, who for the past 10, 15 years has been writing books about the fact that there is such a thing as peripheral France. He doesn't mean by that the France that is at the borders, but he means these are the parts of France, small towns uh, um, uh, and uh, whole areas of the country which do not have access easily to the, the basins of employment in, in, uh, in large metropolises and uh, who cannot, you know, if, if the large company or whatever company is providing employment in their town closes down, nobody's going to replace it. There are no jobs, their houses, if they own them, are worth nothing because nobody wants to go and live there. And these are people who manifest themselves from time to time outside uh, the structures of, of, of political discourse. And they were, of course, part, not all, but part of the yellow vests. And, and they still feel that the country doesn't treat them well. Uh, you can perfectly argue that they have been left behind, far less behind than in North, Northern England or in, in America, because they still have, uh, 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 you know, uh, a French health system that works relatively well. They still have uh, um, a system of pensions which is not generous, but which is uh, enables you to eke out a living, which is very different from being completely poor. Uh, but still, you know, perception is reality. These are uh, the people to whom also Zemmour appeals, and it's interesting because some of them will have read him, but many of them will not have read him because they they don't read you know those kinds of books or indeed many books. Um, What's interesting is how he connects with with that part of France, and that's where his his way of doing this is very different from Trump. Trump was demotic and 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 vulgar, and uh, the way Trump speaks, I mean, it's been told to me by by friends in New York, is you know he used to go with uh, construction crews. His father used to send him with construction crews in Queens, um, and and he speaks like those construction crews, and he has this feeling it's because he's worked with these people for several years growing up. Uh, he, he understands them, which is not entirely false, and certainly the connection existed when he made them. And the one thing about uh, Zemmour is that Zemmour uh, says complicated things, intellectual things, possibly false things, but um, he says them in a way that normally would not appeal to peripheral France, except that the French are different from the Americans, possibly also from the English, certainly from the English. And as long as you do not use your knowledge and culture to belittle people, which is something that unfortunately Emmanuel Macron has been doing repeatedly, uh, people actually still, there is a respect for culture in France. This is fine. Uh, and therefore, they will say, okay, I don't understand everything he says, but I like the tone in which he says it. And I like the fact uh, that he seems to know what he's about. And this is in, incidentally what harmed uh, Marine Le Pen in ways that her father, who, uh, I mean, was close to Zemmour at one stage and certainly helped shape Dumour's style. Um, the old Le Pen is, is pretty unpleasant in many ways, but he certainly is a man who's read widely and has derived lots of things and is, was willing to do this in his speeches, which is not the style of his daughter. So what I'm saying is that you've got a, a populist who is both uh, there to be sort of to reflect the needs of, of people who feel themselves neglected and at the same time who has a style which is specific for France but might appeal uh, uh, to parts of those, those any, somewhere so that um, uh, uh, he would not touch in, in an Anglo-Saxon country to, to shorten things. Uh, that's where I think, um, you know, that's where the, the avenue is. Now, the question is, you know, I've, I've been looking at polls and what's amazing is that when about a month ago he was polling 6%, he's now at 17%. There's a new this morning, Aris Paul, that again says that he's got 17% in the first round. Uh, and a, a bit, he's been shown by at least three polls as coming ahead of Marine Le Pen um, in, in the fight for being in, in the second round. Uh, whether he will reach the second round, I don't know yet. Uh, uh, none of us knows. The person he's most weakened is certainly uh, Marine Le Pen, but he's also weakened a little bit Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the extreme left populist leader. Um, and he's weakened, of course, the Républicains, who are now not even coming in in those polls in the second round. All of this is interesting to watch. And we've got this very open field um, in which it's possible that we'll have a second round with Eric Zemmour. Right now, polling says that Macron will win in every, every case. Macron wins uh, in the second round, whether he has a Républicain, uh, face a Républicain, whether he's facing uh, Zemmour. And he wins even a bit uh, sort of more in the case of Zemmour, because I don't think people have sort of got into their heads that Zemmour could succeed. Uh, 
Uh, right now, they see him as a protest vote and an entertaining protest vote, which is important. Uh, it depends entirely on what kind of a platform Zimmer is going to come up with in the next few days when he finally declares. And if he declares with something that's believable, and if he attacks Emmanuel Macron on his great big presentation of yesterday, and he does this successfully, and that's a lot of ifs, then I think we can't predict what's going to happen. I, my, my bet is still that Macron would win, but I think it's going to be a narrow race. Uh, John, any thoughts on the Trump-Zimmer comparison? Yes, because I disagree with Anna Elizabeth um, on one thing there. I mean, not with all of it, but I, I agree. I disagree that Zamor appeals to the sort of David Goodhart, um, somewhere, nowhere, gilet jaune, um, peripheral people as much as she says he does. I don't think that's his appeal. I, I think Zamor perhaps takes some of those people. I think those who remain with Marine Le Pen and those who maybe remain somewhat with Mélenchon are, are, are more those people than, than the, the core of the Zamorist constituency. The core of the Zamorist constituency is people who are quite well off, who are quite well educated, who, who are may, maybe Catholic, um, who are certainly, um, there are also quite a lot of Jewish people who, who go along with Zamor, who, who are not necessarily poor Jewish people. Who go along with Zamor, even though there are weird and racial aspects of Zamor's um, appeal, which you would think would would not appeal to Jews. But I think a lot of Jews in France are very fearful of Islam in France, maybe partly correctly, maybe incorrectly, and so he he appeals across that strange. Uh, kind of coalition. I don't think he appeals, and I, I said in my own area, which is 30% rassemblement national voting, I don't sense from talking to people that they really can't even know who Zamor is, you know, because they don't watch the same news where he was he was the kind of resident preacher for so long. They don't re read his books. Uh, I think something about Le Pen still, still resonates with them. It's possible he can move into that area, but for the moment, I think the interesting thing about Zamor is he isn't really taking that constituency um, over completely from 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 Le Pen. He's built a, a, another constituency which goes partly into the territory of the, of the centre right rather than the far right. Um, so, uh, comparisons with Trump. Uh, yes, I, uh, he, his way of speaking is obviously quite different from Trump's, as, as, as Anna Elizabeth said. But uh, it, it's also somewhat overlaps with the whole Brexit argument in Britain and Johnson, Farage, and so on. Um, essentially, it seems to me that you, you know, uh, it, it appeals to people who have a sense of loss, who maybe not necessarily hugely badly off, you know, but people can have a sense of loss having lost the country they grew up in, having lost the world they grew up in, without necessarily being poor and, and struggling and suffering. And I think there are a lot of people in France who think that way, who don't like seeing black and brown faces on the television reading the news. You know, There are a lot of people in France who understandably feel threatened by what goes on in the Bonnier. There are a lot of people in, in France, maybe on the, on, the, on, the, on the in the male side of the population, who like the extremely... Uh, excessive uh, uh, sort of anti-women uh, rhetoric of, of Zamor, which we haven't spoken about yet, and I'd be interested to hear Elizabeth's view on that, where, where Zamor believes that the, the, the world that we live in now is kind of feeble because it's too dominated by women and that men should dominate as they did in the past. Um, so I, I, he appeals across, it's a much more difficult constituency to define, I think, than all constituency. It's, it's not simply this kind of gilet jaune constituency that, um, that was partly that of Trump, partly that of Brexit. But they, those constituencies were much wider as well. Trump appealed to anti-tax Republicans who were very well off, as, as, and the Brexit, the Brexit constituency in Britain was not simply people in, in the sort of poor industrial towns in the north. And Elizabeth, I, 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 I know we are a little over time, but if you want to respond to what John said, um, let us know. Well, yes. I mean, it's... Um, um, there's one thing. I mean, I don't want to uh, give the impression that I, I think Zemmour should get a pass on women because, of course, he shouldn't. He's being pretty ridiculous. I also think that he's a... I think he's a shock jock and that uh, as he goes into politics uh, uh, and, and he declares his candidacy, uh, I think we will actually see him certainly not, you know, go do a 180-degree reversal, but uh, he will indicate by, by sort of... Uh, 
getting more emollient about this, that he was just sort of, you know, teasing the readers, the viewers, whatever. I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing, but I also know that he knows he's got this instinct for the psyche, the general psyche. Uh, the feminization of society is both uh, an absurdity and something that appeals with people saying, well, there's a lack of responsibility. Uh, and, uh, and nowadays, uh, men do not take responsibility for things. Uh, and I think all of this is mixed in this sort of inchoate uh, uh, sort of uh, porridge uh, of, of more or less toxic ideas that he has devised. Uh, having said that, uh, the thing about Zimru, and you may say that this is an incredibly unfair pass, and that's the one thing on which it can be compared to Trump, is that whereas uh, any other politician saying this would not get a free pass, people <coughs> who like Zimru already, uh, including women, including people who are not uh, Le Pen voters, would be Le Pen voters, are people who will uh, uh, say, oh, well, this is just Zimur being Zimur, just as they said, oh, this is just Trump being Trump. I mean, the things that Trump said, the pussy grabbing and all that, that was very obviously something that would not have been acceptable left or right in America. And yet it did not harm Donald Trump, essentially because they said, okay, we know what he is, we don't care. He sees the uncle who disgraces himself at the end of a family dinner. That's it. I don't care. He annoys the other. This is this is the primary point. And I think that is one of Demour's strengths, is that he is perceived like that still. At one stage, it will stop. But, you know, it, it never stopped for Trump. Uh, and uh, this this is one of the mysteries of politics in the age of sort of neo-populism, if you will. Well, thanks a lot. And Elizabeth, that's a great place to conclude. Thank you to the both of you for this deep dive into um, Zemurism, Zemurism. Um, and uh, I'm sure we will have a lot more to say about him as the campaign continues, because it doesn't seem like he wants to stop. At some point, it was ambiguous whether he would actually run, but I think at this point, there's no doubt whatsoever. Um, thank you to the both of you and to all our listeners. See you next week. Et voilà. And Elizabeth Moutet and John Litchfield are out. So, François, what did you think about this episode on Eric Zemmour? Um, I've been following Zemmour for a long time because he's been a, a media figure for a long time. He's been writing for the Figaro. Over the past two years, he had this show on CNews, which exploded. He, I think he increased the audience 12-fold or 13-fold, something ludicrous like that in six months. Um, so he's become a very important media figure and... Um, he's often making the headlines. It's been a very long time um, that people started saying, you know what, you should actually run for the presidency. You have very strongly political ideas um, and you complain that no one, no one is doing the job. Why don't you run? And I think at some point he found the people around him who told him, okay, this is now your chance. He has this kind of specific ability as well. He's an intellectual, you know, you may contest how intellectual he is, but he's identified as an intellectual. That gives him an advantage. But he also has this kind of specific advantage, which... Um, some politicians have, like Sarkozy, it's like Trump, is that he is unsinkable. It's going to be very hard to find one scandal that will sink his uh, run. Um, we didn't talk about it, but a month ago, uh, there was a uh, People magazine, People's magazine uh, uh, called Paris Match, uh, which, make a head which made a headline of Zemmour with uh, one of his advisors, um, uh, a woman, um, in each other's arms in a suggestive position. Um, so, you know, and there's a lot of kind of stories going on that he has affairs and yada, yada, yada. So it, it was a pretty, pretty uh, direct attack on Zimur. Zimur was furious. Zimur complained about it. He said it was an attack on his, on his privacy. And he's pretty, he's pretty, he was right about it, but it was pretty scandalous. Um, but it did nothing to dent his popularity, none whatsoever. If anything, he continued to increase. So that's the first thing. Secondly, if he if he ever goes on trial over the next few um, uh, weeks or months, um, he has been sentenced once for uh, inciting racial hatred a few years ago. Um, he says it's a political decision. He says the judges are a uh, political tool of, uh, for uh, political correctness and um, the rest of it. But... What is really strong about his model, his worldview, is that he understands for journalists, he understands especially for judges, to have done a coup. One of his earliest books was Le, Le Gouvernement des, des Juges, The Government of Judges. And so if he's ever attacked by the judges in his campaign, he'll be able to, to say, well, you know what, this is exactly what I predicted, but judges want to have a 
insane level of influence in our national politics, which should be decided by you, the lecturer, not by the judges. So on all these issues, he is kind of really strong and very much unsinkable. And on top of that, um, he made this kind of very pessimistic diagnostic of French situation decades ago, you know, on, on, on terrorism, on Islam. He was very bleak even before the first 2015 terrorist attacks. Um, and back then, back before 2015, everybody would say, you know, you can't say that, you're, you're, you're being racist, you're, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, dystopian. Um, now people aren't saying he's dystopian anymore. People are saying that um, uh, people are saying his solutions are not up to the task or he will actually make things worse. But what's really interesting is he has this kind of advantage for being the very first person to present this kind of very dystopian view of French society, which is now shared by a large chunk of the electorate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, your, your point about judges reminds me that uh, Zemmour is already kind of up against the uh, unelected uh, bureaucratic class of, uh, you know, rulemakers and, 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 and so forth. He, he's been he's had his uh, speaking time on CNews capped by the uh, uh, CSA, by the uh, regulating body for the audio- audiovisual sector in France. On the on the uh, premise that since you know even though he hasn't declared openly that he's going to be a candidate yet, the CSA um, uh, uh, ruled essentially that um, it was a de facto candidate. Yeah, yeah, that he, that he was pretty much in the running. Uh, he was pretty much uh, evidently in the running, and so they decided to limit uh, the amount of time that he's allowed to to uh, to uh, go on bladder uh, blathering on TV. But uh, to your point, to your larger point about uh, his, you know, the, the fact that he's unsinkable, I was really, I was really interested in, in some of the comments we heard, uh, particularly by John Litchfield off the record uh, towards the end, the end of the podcast. He, he was, he was, um, he was explaining how uh, the views of French Jews on Zemmour are not what you would expect. I mean, um, Zemmour is also being. Um, He's being uh, sued by uh, a Jewish organization, a Jewish student organization, Union des Étudiants Juifs de France, has sued him over uh, what they claim is uh, a, a Holocaust denialism. Uh, yeah. This is essentially a comment that he made, uh, I think, a couple of years back, but he has repeated it uh, since several times, which uh, cl- by claiming that uh, the Vichy regime was essentially a bulwark for French Jews that you know deliberately deported or collaborated in deporting. Uh, foreign Jews in order so as to protect French Jews. Uh, Zimuch has made this claim repeatedly and he's being sued over it. Um, but the, the reality of it, and, and John was, was uh, uh, talking along these lines earlier, um, the reality of it is that uh, a majority of French Jews, and particularly in the lower strata of French Jewish life, uh, so people who, for instance, cannot afford to flee the banlieue, people who are stuck in their banlieue and who are seeing uh, the you know the rise in, in crime or who are seeing uh, the difficulty of integrating Islam into national life um, these these kinds of French Jews are uh, a lot more willing to hear the kind of message that Zimbabwe brings than you would think they're not they're not um, you know they, they're not willing to uh, to, uh, to put a cordon sanitaire around Zimbabwe they're actually very amenable to the kinds of uh, camp- to the kind of, of campaign rhetoric that he brings yeah, it's a very interesting um, situation. I think the, there's a lot of debate within the, the Jewish community. The, direct, the president du CRIF, which is a um, representative body of, uh, of the French Jews, said not a single Jewish vote should go to Zemmour. And I think in reality, it's going to be a much more complex landscape than this. I, I just want to go back to this kind of his pessimistic view of French society. Um. A lot of commentators have made a parallel of Trump, but also the parallel of Emmanuel Macron's 2017 run, when he benefited from the realigned politics of the time. But just, I think, while in 2017, the French were already as pessimistic as they are, they believe France is in decline, they believe there's too much immigration, they believe that the French society is in a very tense situation, and also very pessimistic about globalisation, they still decided to vote for Macron's rosy optimism, because I think... In elections, people do not want to back a pessimistic Cassandra, you know, um, like in the. Um, uh... So you know, Cassandra, the Troyan um, uh, priestess, 
that saw the truth, but nobody believed because it was so uh, bleak. She was cursed to utter true prophecies. Um, Zimur could be that kind of Cassandra because he's always been very pessimistic and, and might resonate with electric. But can he transcend his pessimistic and dark analysis of French society and present the equivalent of what Boris Johnson did in the 2019 campaign in the UK? Because he not only managed to make sure the campaign was on Brexit, he focalised the campaign on Brexit, just like Zimur is managing to focalise the campaign on immigration and identity. But more than that, he presented the famous oven-ready solution to Brexit. Vote for me, I'll go in office, and I've got my oven-ready Brexit plan. Zimur needs to pivot from very pessimistic Cassandra to someone who says, if you vote for me, I have a solution. I can bring you back to greatness. And I think that transition is not easy because, from my understanding, Zimur is personally a very pessimistic person in the first place. So what I think is really interesting is to see, will he manage to make that pivot. Um, otherwise, uh, people will vote for the optimist, even if they themselves tend to be more pessimistic. Wonderful. And with that, we've, uh, this episode is, is brought to a close. Thank you so much for listening to us. And please remember, if you want to support the show, there are several small things you can do. Please follow us on Twitter. Uh, please do uh, subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. And also, most importantly, if you'd like to financially contribute, however small an amount that you make, uh, please do support us on Patreon. We have a, an account that is uh, up, up and running. We, we have shared the address on our Twitter page. Please do support, consider supporting us on Patreon. And thank you so much for listening to this episode and see you next week. See you next week. And if you want the Patreon, it's in the description right below. Yep, scroll down. Here it is. See you next week.